0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart podcast, episode forty. <laughs> So can we talk about lobster for a second? It is a crustacean, it's kind of insect-like, and as a food, it's often served whole. And it arrives at your table bright red with a side of butter, some cracking tools, maybe a little fork, and of all things, people often put on nice shoes and bibs before ripping the body of the animal to pieces so they can get at its succulent meats. And when you do think about lobster, whether or not you actually eat it or eat any meat at all, I'm sure like most people, you can see it clearly inside your mind. Resting on one side of that vast spectrum of food fanciness. It's not the most expensive food around, but it is a bit pricey. And to most people, in most places, lobsters certainly isn't something you eat every week. It's special in some way, upscale. On a scale that runs from fine dining to junk food. Lobster, it it seems more at home with caviar and steak, Kobe beef and fine wine and aged liquor and champagne. Not on the other end of that gradient, but things like macaroni and cheese and uh, hot dogs. lobster to most americans is a fancy food definitely something that you would be proud to serve to guests or even at special events if you were in charge of choosing a meal for the president of the united states and you had to choose between lobster and sliced ham you would probably pick the lobster but if you had been born before the 20th century you would without a doubt go with the ham or pretty much anything else. In fact, if you had been born just a few generations back, you would be astonished to learn that in the future, lobster would cost more than canned beans. And if you were to see it on a restaurant's menu, you would probably decide to eat somewhere else instead. Because until recently, lobster was considered, well, let's just say that most people saw it much differently than we do today.
1: I mean, the thing that, like, most closely comes to mind is spam.
0: That's Daniel Lutzer. He's a journalist who recently wrote an article about the history of the lobster in the United States.
1: I am the news editor at Governing magazine, although this piece that we're sort of referencing was a freelance thing that I wrote for for Pacific Standard.
0: According to Daniel, for most of the time lobster has been a part of the American experience, it has been viewed as junk food and not the good kind.
1: I mean, it's the sort of thing that, you know, it is food and it sort of resembles food, but like it's it's not considered sort of like socially appropriate and it's embarrassing to eat. Um, they would serve lobster to servants and to prisoners, you know, it was like a, a you sort of like basic food, but it was not at all the sort of thing that you, you know, would serve in any sort of like, uh, in any sort of uh, respectable household.
0: Daniel says that for most of the time, people have been familiar with lobster. That familiarity came with an attitude, an attitude that, well, lobsters for people who don't have discerning palates or the luxury of cultivating such a thing. It was something to avoid, something cheap and kind of nasty, a food that he says some people, well, they bought it to feed their pets, but not their families. And as far back as the first colonists in the 1600s, the governor of the Plymouth Colony, Thought it was, well, not a delicacy and definitely not fancy.
1: William Bradford, who was the uh, an early governor, um, he was sort of embarrassed to admit to his guests that I'm afraid we don't have anything to give you but lobster. Because this is all, you know, it, it was a sort of, it was a, a bad winter.
0: Lobster, the spam Of the sea. And it was once so reviled that, as Daniel discovered, contracts in the early colonies were even written out to ensure that indentured servants could not be fed lobster more than three times a week. So why don't we feel that way today? Well, actually, we probably would feel the same way as they did back then about lobster today, if not for the invention of something that would change the lives of everyone, everywhere, forever, in many, many ways, not just when it comes to lobster and that is the railroad
1: um in what what people discovered was that sort of like um, the railroads figured out that people coming from the coast you know, who who were traveling from one part of the country to another um, often hadn't heard of lobster, you know, like somebody, somebody from the east coast certainly knew all about lobster, but somebody from the west coast or from the midwest didn't know about it, didn't know its reputation, and you know, you could just serve canned lobster, you know, take it out of the can put it on a plate, and they figured it tasted delicious, and they were happy to keep eating it, and And that's the sort of the the basic early point at which lobster became something that, you know, was sort of more of a delicacy, you know, like people from, you know, traveling from Des Moines to Chicago would have lobster on their trips. They'd tell their friends in Des Moines about it. And then, you know, there was sort of a demand for it. Other people would take the train and they'd be like, oh, I've heard about this wonderful new lobster. Let's get that. Um, now that was still it was still the it was still canned lobster you know it was it was not cooked live certainly you know they were not they were they weren't putting live lobsters on trains and boiling them um, but this was the 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 first point at which Americans began began to think of it as a sort of a delicacy.
0: Daniel says, as word spread about lobster, from train stop to train stop, to town to city, chefs began to seek it out, to experiment with cooking it. And since the people on these trains and in these towns far from the East Coast were disconnected from the public opinion on the other side of the country, where lobster was considered more of something along the lines of squirrel or raccoon or possum, the demand grew and grew and grew people could not get enough of it it was different it was new to them it tasted great and soon fishermen harvested so much of it that the lobster populations dwindled demand soon exceeded supply and a meat once considered better used as bait started to rise and rise in price and at that point for all of the americans living outside of new england lobster became something that was not only considered exotic but it was also expensive. And when you combine those two aspects, well, lobster was elevated to a new flavor profile. Now, lobster was a delicious delicacy.
1: Cultural influences are really, really important to how it is that, you know, like what we eat and what we consider to be appropriate for our diet. Um, You know, it's like you you eat food because other people eat it and you, you know, think of food as a delicacy because other people think of it as a delicacy. Um, You know, it's like that. The The actual taste of the food is, like, kind of secondary to this. You know, like, people will eat anything as long as other people seem to think it's popular, and people will reject things, you know, when other people do.
0: I love that lobster story, and thank you to Daniel Lutzer for explaining how Lobster became fancy. He is the news editor for Governing Magazine, and you can read his article about the history of lobster at Pacific Standard. I'll have a link to it at the website. So who was more deluded, the people who once thought canned lobster was gross and preferred to use it as bait, or the people who thought canned lobster was fancy and paired it with white wine while traveling across the country on vacation? And the answer, of course, is both realities were delusional. But there is also one more factor to consider. Daniel says in his article, quote, lobster might seem to taste better to us because it's so expensive. And he goes into some detail on this. But the bottom line is that to the mind of a modern human being, the deliciousness of certain foods can be tied directly to their prices. Lobster has always tasted the same, but its value has been warped. In at least three different eras, by three different social lenses. It went from undesirable to scrumptious to fancy, and it shows that thanks to cultural attitudes, human beings rarely get a chance to judge what they eat on the raw sensory experience alone. How we think about food is influenced by social expectations. And this, it turns out, is a great example of something we've just recently learned in psychology. If you separate human beings from the rest of the animal kingdom and you see our species as a kind of primate and then you divide our behaviors into two categories, things that all primates do and things that only humans do, the fact that we think lobster plates and designer handbags and gold watches and diamond rings are worth the price we pay for them simply because they are so expensive, it seems that that is a uniquely irrational human trait. And we have evidence for this thanks to the work of scientists like our guest in this episode, psychologist Lori Santos, who is hot on the trail of the origins of our irrational behavior by comparing what we do to the behavior of monkeys who have learned how to use currency to buy goods. And here's the amazing thing. This price bias concerning luxury items is one of the first such irrational behaviors that she has discovered is uniquely ours. Yes, it seems as though a great deal of our rational thinking and delusional decision making is not human and human alone, but we share it with all the other animals who also inherited the primate blueprint for building brains. And what does this tell us when we learn that some irrational behaviors are primal and some are uniquely human? And how can we use that knowledge to build a better society, better institutions, and to make better choices? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney, and I will be your host. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we talk about another topic. We explore another aspect of the realm of self-delusion, the psychology of decision-making, the neuroscience of reasoning, judgments, behaviors surrounding, all of that sort of stuff. And on this episode, we are going to explore the origins of our irrational behavior with psychologist Lori Santos. Now she is working to help solve one of the toughest mysteries in all of psychology, which is when people do dumb things, is that the fault of their environments or their biologies? In other words, are we irrational from one situation to the next because our brains are built off of a maladaptive evolutionary blueprint or because our brains are molded that way by our culture? or? Are we reacting to a poorly designed institution? The recent banking crisis, for example, as she put it, was that the result of a few bad apples? Was it the fault of a flawed institution? Or was it simply basic primate behavior playing itself out in a predictable way? And if it's predictable, can we build institutions around that, knowing that it's something that's primal and predictable and will show up every time we do anything? In her comparative cognition laboratory, Santos is getting to the bottom of all that by training monkeys to use money and then putting them into scenarios that humans traditionally have problems solving. And now here is one of those problems and let's see how you do. Okay. Well, you do imagine that you're going to receive $1,000. Okay. I've just handed it to you. I just, I just doled it out to you in the cold, hard cash, flip, 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 flip. You now have this money in your hands, $1,000 and you can do whatever you want with it. You get to keep it after you make a choice. And this is a choice about gaining money. You have to choose between one of two different options. Option one, I'm going to flip a coin. If it turns up heads, you get another $1,000. And If it comes up tails, you get nothing. Or option two, no coin flip. You just get an extra $500. No questions asked. All right. So most people, they go with option two. That's $1,500 for sure. All right, now. Let's imagine that this is done in a completely different way, and let's see how you pick this time, all right? You receive $2,000. This time, it's exactly the same, same kind of thing. Cash, flip, 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 flip. You have all this money in your hands, $2,000. You get to keep this money, do whatever you want with it after you make a choice, and here's the choice. It's a choice about losing money. I'm going to either flip a coin, or you're going to choose the other option. In option one, I flip a coin, and if it comes up heads, you lose $1,000 if it comes up tails, you lose nothing. Option two, I'm just going to take back $500. No questions asked. Now, I don't know what you did, but if you're like most people, most people go with the riskier option in that second scenario, even though both scenarios are the exact same problem. Both scenarios are take a 50-50 shot of leaving with either $2,000 or $1,000 or take a sure bet of leaving with 1500 and laid out like that framed in that way. It seems like a lot easier of a choice to make. The problem seems easy to solve, but when it's framed as a loss, instead of framed as a gain, you get risky, you get irrational. And this is a great example of the way that human beings and money really don't work that well together in many, many, many scenarios. And if you take this choice and you offer it to a monkey, they will do the exact same thing. And we know that this question and that, uh, those experiments, they all come from the lab of Lori Santos. And she's also discovered that the thing we talked about earlier with the lobsters and luxury items and labels that indicate something is expensive. Human beings are fooled by that, but monkeys are not. And we see that by doing this sort of experiments, we know work on humans, trying them out on monkeys. and, And it seems like they are impervious to that. And we're going to talk about in the interview, why we think that might be so. Along those lines, I asked you on the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page, what are some dumb things that humans do that other animals don't? Things that you've seen that you think maybe are uh, uniquely human and also strange and stupid that other animals don't seem to fall prey to. Uh, there are so many great things on here. There were more than a, a hundred and, there were 115 total uh, responses. Um, Kasper uh, Kwiatkowski, he, he wrote War, of course. Uh, and of course some people popped in and said, uh, uh, but an enemies wage war. And then there's some discussion of what that monkeys have warlike behavior, behavior. And, uh, then there was, uh, lying. And then people, uh, chimed in immediately saying, this is, uh, Dryan S said many times, he's like, Nope. Uh, apes sometimes lie. And then there were the other things in there. Some people say, uh, regret Dryan once popped in again, no regret is something that we think that rats may do. And there were, there were so many great responses destroying our own environment and our own ecology. There was a nice discussion about that. And people said back and forth that maybe this is something that animals do uh, just like humans. And there was some debate as to whether or not that's a purely human thing. And I, I love this when Justin Moore says tattoo their own name on themselves. Are you going to forget or something? Yes, Justin. Now you have identified something that only humans do for sure. There were other things in there. Uh, Nicholas LeBlanc said drunk driving. John Padilla said argue on the Internet. Uh Takeed Ali Khan said bite their nails. I'm not sure that's purely human. Um and uh Sean Brennan says drink milk after childhood. And uh that was followed by a discussion of how there are some animals who seem to do that as well. So what we see all throughout here, there are things like uh Damian Barton says vote, and uh other people chime in and say that you know primates do that. They they seem to vote. Uh there are people in here who say things like Mike uh Scholes says that commit logical fallacies and allow yourself to be controlled by emotions. But it seems as though primates do commit these fallacies. And of course they seem to control or can be controlled by their emotions. Um, There are things in here like Yale Vargas says waste time on Facebook. That's good. Uh, But if we break that down into what kind of behavior is that, is that a kind of behavior that, you know, if we were to reduce it to what its raw behavior actually is, what's being expressed, is that something that only humans do or any primate would do? Placed in a similar situation. And that's why the Comparative Cognition Laboratory that uh, is headed up by our guest today is such an interesting place because the more and more we search, the more and more we find that human behaviors, predilections, and the choices that we make seem to line up pretty well with the sort of things that primates will do if they're trained to take part in the institutions that we've created, like financial institutions and exchanging money for goods and services. I think you're going to love this interview. We go all over the place and talk about a lot of stuff, and it's one of my favorites of all time. So let's listen to what uh, Lori Santos has to say. Let's pick her brain. First of all, uh, Lori, you have one of the coolest jobs in the world. So... <laughs> So would you mind, uh, describing what exactly happens at your comparative cognition laboratory?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, I am interested in both the smart and dumb things that make people special, Um, and I study that question by uh, studying how other primates make decisions. Um, And so uh, we have a colony of capuchin monkeys, Um, it's like a big zoo enclosure of monkeys, and we do a bunch of studies with them about how they make decisions. Uh, We also do some work at a field site known as Cayo Santiago, which is... An island off the coast of Puerto Rico that's home to about a thousand free-ranging monkeys. So they kind of run around and do their monkey thing, and we can show up and set up studies to try to look at how they think about the world.
0: Well, this is, uh, I I think a lot of people are going to hear that, and they're going to immediately think: um, you're studying people by studying. Monkeys, and yep. so, and I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really happy to have you on the show because I think that, um, the the reason why you do that, and I'll give you a chance to answer why that is, is because I think that anyone who begins to learn about uh, biases and heuristics and fallacies and all that stuff will usually begin to wonder what are the origins of these these irrational behaviors and decision making models and all this stuff. And one of the biggest questions in psychology is always about uh, whether or not uh, you can sort things out to to see if does this particular behavior or strategy spring from culture, or is this more biological in origin? And it's just being expressed through some sort of cultural filter? So, why do you study uh, monkeys to study people, and how is your research sort of attacking that question of origins?
2: Yeah. So I mean, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, really. We want to know where some of these biases come from, right? And it, it's a kind of strange thing to think that they might come from something within our phylogeny or something that we're built to do because, usually when we think of the kinds of things we might be built for, we think of like smarter sorts of decisions and smarter sorts of capacities, right? You kind of build it. it, Natural selection wants to build in the stuff that's particularly smart and the stuff that's going to help you get out and survive and make good decisions and reproduce and so on. Um, So it's a little bit strange to think that some of our biases might be built in. Um, But the fact of the matter is, I mean, as you've seen on your show tons of time, Like, people don't overcome these biases as quickly as you'd think, right? Like, a lot of our heuristics seem to be ingrained. You know, you hear about them and you hear that you shouldn't do them, but that doesn't stop you from... um, you know, showing the, the bias on the next example that you give, um, and that suggested to us that some of these things might be a bit more automatic than we expect, um, and they might be a little, bit, a little bit more deeply ingrained than we expected. And so that was one of the reasons we started to turn to to monkeys to try to see well if these things are really evolutionarily old. Maybe we're not the only species that shows them. I mean, we're the only species that has. Podcasts about biases and and rich economic (laughs) markets and these things, but um, you know maybe these strategies are there for something much older. And so we kind of embarked on this mission to study biases and irrationalities in the monkeys. And and, you know we've been really surprised with some of the similarities we've seen so far.
0: Yeah, that is uh it is it is so cool. So such an awesome uh, way to attack this problem. And um, it also means
2: I get to hang out with like fun furry creatures in warm places, (laughs) which you know has has a nice perk too.
0: And and we should uh, note, of course, that these are these uh, ad- these are not our uh, just anyone who may still have that foggy notion. These are not our ancestors, but we share an ancestor. We we know all the evidence suggests we share an ancestor. So that's right. Um, I mean,
2: in an ideal world, we'd be able to run all our studies with direct ancestors like Australopithecine or Homo erectus or something, but. It's, it's hard to recruit subjects because they're all dead. So, um, <laughs> you know, we, we would we would be like waiting for sub folks to sign up for a long time. And so we kind of need to use a proxy. And it's worth remembering that they are a proxy. You know, they, they too have been on their own evolutionary path for 35 million years. But they're still one of the best windows that that we have into what's going on in, in human cognition.
0: Would I be right, and tell me if I'm just... Uh an idiot, but the, um, it, like yeah. it's sort of like, it's sort of like big cats and house cats, you know, like the, they share a lot of similar behaviors, but they have a, and they have a, um, and they look very similar and they both respond to certain, um, uh, chemicals. And you know, I've seen like tigers and lions will play around and catnip and stuff like that. Exactly. But they're, but you know, they, if you look on their evolutionary tree, they share a common ancestor many millions of years ago. Uh, yet they still have many of the same, behaviors and we can sort of maybe uh it may may be true that they they've inherited those both the big cats and the small cats, uh the house cats have inherited those behaviors from a common a common ancestor a long time ago, right?
2: Yep. And that's the idea between you know us and them, right? We, um, you know, we each have kind of primate-like brains and primate-like hands, and those come from a common ancestor that we shared back in the day. You know, we both got it a long time ago, and we've kept it over our evolutionary path. And and that's what we're trying to look at with some of these biases. The idea is that. Maybe it's not just modern humans that show this stuff. Maybe this wound up turning up in our primate lineage way back in the day. And therefore, we, we both kind of stuck with it over evolutionary time. And, and if so, then we can kind of use other species as kind of a window back into our past. They're kind of like a little experimental time machine, you know, because we can kind of get a glimpse of the kind of stuff we shared with our common ancestor way back in the day by seeing similarities. Um,
0: yeah, Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and um, I... I like that it's not just purely uh, speculation that it's not like maybe people like berries because berry, you know, there, it's, yep. a, it's a it's you're actually out there in the trenches actually uh, doing crazy stuff like creating monkey marketplaces, which mm-hmm. is uh, <laughs> I love I love that you named it that tell me what is a monkey marketplace? What do you what goes on in there?
2: Well, we we kind of devised the monkey marketplace, um, and when I say we, it's it's uh, myself in collaboration with a student Venkat um, and a colleague Keith Chen, who's an economist um, at uh, at UCLA. And what what we decided to do together was to come up with a way that we could test whether or not monkeys had these biases. Now, most of the human biases you see in the context of these little you know, financial gambles, right? Do you want $1,000? now or blah, blah, blah. And so what we wanted to do was to test the monkeys using the same methods as, as folks have, have tested the same biases in people. And that meant trying to teach the monkeys their own currency so we'd have kind of a unit about which to ask them. Um, of course, monkeys don't use money, so this was kind of you know experimental hurdle number one. Um, but it turned out that there was lots of evidence that uh, other primates were pretty good at using these little tokens to trade with people for food and other resources. And so we said, well, let's let's train our capuchin monkeys to use some tokens, um, and we'll just try to see you know from that training what do they understand about it. And so we introduced uh, monkeys to little tokens. They're, they're little uh, metal washers that we just got at uh, Home Depot. Um, and we taught the monkeys that they could kind of trade those washers with people for food. Um, our, our our capuchins are really curious little critters. You know, they walk over and pick up these tokens. As soon as they see them, I'm like, what are these weird things? And they see this, this human in the center who's like holding a piece of food. And so they kind of come over to see what's that food. And the human kind of swaps the food for the token. And really with a couple of experiences just like this, the monkeys pick up like, oh, I get it. Like I, I give them this token and then I get some food. Um, that was kind of step one. And then step two was to see, you know, who we just taught them some strange party trick or did the monkeys really understand something about tokens like a real fiat currency, you know, something that they could trade and that held on to value and that they cared about kind of maximizing their value of and so on. And so uh, to test this, we um, quite literally put the monkeys into their own market. Um, whenever the monkeys wanted some food, they could come out of their big social enclosure through this little tunnel, which is where we do our testing. Um, and when they got to the end of the tunnel, they'd see a little wallet filled with tokens. Um, and what they could do is just spend those tokens to buy food in any way they wanted. Um, usually they had a choice of two different experimenters in the lab, just students in the lab who wore different clothing um, and sold food at different prices. Um, so the monkeys could use their, their token to buy a, a one grape from one experimenter or they could buy one apple piece from a second experimenter and we just asked how do they spend? Um, How do they spend their budget? And we were interested in whether they they did some of the rational things that people do. You know, people aren't all heuristics and biases. You know, sometimes we show these sort of rational behaviors. (laughs) Um, And we wanted to see whether the monkeys were kind of rational in some of the same spots as people are. And so we asked, do they try to maximize expected value? So if they have a choice between a guy who's selling one grape and a guy who's selling two grapes, do they kind of shop at the guy who gives them more? Um, The surprising answer, even with really little training, was yes. Um, The monkeys, when they had that choice, they shopped at rates of about 80 or 90% at the guy who was giving them twice as much food. Um, We also found that they could... Uh, calculate the risk of different experimenters. So sometimes we gave them choices between experimenters who did different things on different trials, and we found they could kind of average what people did over time to get a sort of average expected value from the different experimenters. Um, It it was pretty remarkable, particularly when dealing with um, kind of output and price, is that the monkeys... Seem to do exactly what we would expect of human traders. Um, my my colleague Keith is fond of saying that if you just had the monkeys' data in a spreadsheet and you didn't know, you, you'd think they were um, price shifting as well as a human <laughs> trader. You know, so um, so so they were they were pretty sharp with this market.
0: That is uh, so awesome, and and like you know, we I think we could probably I mean we can assume that money and marketplaces and these are sort of cultural inventions uh, that human beings have created and. Um, and there are certain aspects of that you will find in different, uh, primates. Like, uh, I've seen that there, there are primate, there are monkeys that will, um, you know, they will, they'll dive for clams and then they will use rocks to open the clams. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some that, uh, the, famously, the, the, um, the ones that, that wash, uh, potatoes, that yep. sort of stuff. So these are things, you know, there's not a, there's not something in the, there's not a gene, there's not a, a part of the brain that says wash potatoes or there's a, you know, yeah. or a, or, no, they're, or, they're
2: good at socially learning and good good at picking this stuff up. The, the other thing is, like, in their natural environment, they have all these kind of market-like structures that they have to navigate. Um, so... If you've seen any nature videos, you know, like other primates, you know, groom one another, and there's this question about, like, you know, how long should you groom somebody, and should you care about how much they groomed you, and should you get your grooming expected value, and so on, and and (laughs) and and lots of biologists have have talked about this term, biological markets, right? The kind of real goods and services um, that animals exchange with one another, and they they have to track that stuff. Probably some of the the heuristics we're using are, are the ones that are built for those kinds of markets, and we just kind of you know added fiat currencies and exchange oh, rates yeah. and 401ks and this other stuff but but the strategies are much older
0: that is great yes okay that makes a lot of sense and the so it's uh you know when you're in the dorm room and you're having that conversation where you're like uh, hey man you know the your money's just paper <laughs> like why <laughs> why uh, uh, this why do we care about paper like you really just say like you're discovering without realizing it <laughs> what the difference between like culture and biology you know this exactly. is and but the way we interact with that thing that we invented seems like it may actually have um, a more deeply evolutionary origin that it's off, comes off of primate foundations. And before we get into that though, like one of the things that you, um, that you researched was, you know, specifically certain things from uh, psychology, certain irrational behaviors we can reliably see pop up over and over again with human beings. One of them that I um, mentioned earlier in the show was uh, this, um uh, if you have a choice between receiving thousand dollars and you're given a chance to add to it, or you're given two thousand dollars and given a chance to lose some of it, mm-hmm. um, you have uh, you'll have a slightly different um, you'll have a sort of different response to it depending on the frame. So, could you sort of take us through how you presented that exact same problem to monkeys and what you discovered?
2: Yeah. So, so we knew we could present the monkeys with kind of guys who varied in risk. Um, we could also present them with um, different experimenters who seemed to give either bonuses or gains or, or in contrast, losses. Um, and so we gave the monkeys the, the $1,000 scenario by um, introducing monkeys to to two different traders. They both started with a, a small amount of food, so um, one piece of apple. Um, but we had them both give bonuses. So the first experimenter gave a safe bonus. He always added a second apple piece to the one apple piece. So he gave always two. Um, the, but the monkeys could choose this guy or the second guy. That guy also started with one piece of apple. Um, half the time he didn't add anything. Half the time he gave a big bonus to give the monkeys three. And so the, the expected value across the two is the same. They, they get two expectedly. Um, but they kind of vary in whether... how how risky they are. So the first guy is safe and the second guy is pretty risky. And what we find there is that the monkeys, um, they tend to go with the safe guy. They tend to go with a a consistent bonus of an extra one for two, um, which is fine. You know, that could just be that the monkeys are kind of avoid risk, just like humans. What we really wanted to see was whether the monkeys showed the framing effect. In other words, did they change their preference for risk when they were dealing with losses versus gains? And so to test that, we gave the monkeys a second scenario with the same option for risk and the same expected value at the end. It's just this time we framed it as a loss. And to do that, we introduced the monkeys to two new traders. They each start with three pieces of apple, except this time both experimenters are gonna take some away. And so the first guy takes some away safely. He always starts with three and every single trial he takes one away to give two. Um, and the second guy is risky. So the second guy starts with three, half the time he doesn't take any away, but half the time he takes a lot away to give the monkeys only one. And so expected value is exactly the same and the amount of risk is exactly the same, but what we find is that the monkeys here shift their preference. So now instead of going with the safe guy, they tend to shop at the risky experimenter. Um, <laughs> amazingly, they show exactly the same framing effect that that people show um which which we found to be kind of both surprising and, and kind of pretty cool
0: it is cool and you know this this problem like a lot of problems in this uh in this realm of psychology i always have to always sit down and, and write it out so that yeah, i can yeah. understand I can, <laughs> so i can understand why am i why can't i see this the way it actually is the first time through because you know when you write it out it's like one guy uh it's it's one grape always adds one, so you always get two. Yep. And the other guy, one grape or one app slice of apple, uh, sometimes gives you two, sometimes nothing. So it's either three or one. And then the second run, it's three three pieces of food, always takes one, end mm-hmm. up with two. Other person uh, start out with three, sometimes takes two, sometimes and so it's one or three. So it's always it's the same thing every time. It you know, always every time. Always to showed
2: us before, which was cool. That they like they can track this, right? They can track expected value. They know when it's the same thing every time. It's just when you set up the frame. When it now when it looks like a bonus, it's like ooh, cool bonuses. Like you better get that consistently. And when it's a loss, it's like oh no, this is terrible. How can I avoid this? Let me take on way more risk. I mean, it's really incredible.
0: I do. I do it immediately. Like even knowing it's coming up, I still feel these feelings, Mm -hmm. and then. And even though I know it's the exact same scenario, it still feels different. And I've shown this to uh, you know other people just this week because I, I wanted to see it in action. <laughs> and yeah. everyone everyone makes the same mistake. Yep. Um,
2: the other thing that so, fu- I find funny is when I talk about this stuff, um, it's curious people's reaction to their own mistake. You know, because people can do the math; they know their intuition is like wrong, and it, it's always pretty funny to people when they realize what they're doing wrong, right? I think this is one of the great things about your podcast is that some of our own reactions to our own, own dumb biases is to kind of find them really funny, and I don't, I don't <laughs> know why we, why we find our irrationality funny, but, but yeah, but that, that's the reaction. Um, the monkeys aren't meta-aware enough to realize they've done something silly, but. But um, if they were, maybe they would find it humorous too.
0: We'll know. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's um, th- what makes what the reason I love what you do so much is that it um, I get uh, this question all the time, which is when we talk about irrational behavior and flawed judgments and quirky decision making, all that stuff is that uh, people are always like, well, if I'm so if people are so smart, you know, if we can make cities and iPhones and cure polio, why, Why are we so dumb? in all these other ways and how did we ever get here if mm-hmm. all this stuff was between us and doing the right thing. Um, I'm interested to hear what, how you would answer that question.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think a couple things. One is that, um, you know, natural selection can't build an ideal world, right? It's got to work with the materials it has. Um, and sometimes it just does the best with a bad set of kind of ingredients. Um, and so it often ends up in these sort of local minima where some strategy is good for some stuff, it ultimately might be bad, but if it's not so bad that you're really taking a kind of fitness or a reproductive hit, it's probably okay and it's going to hang out, right? Um, you know, if you you look in our eye, you can see that we have this sort of funny blind spot, which is kind of an accident of the way the eye's organized. You know, we got all kinds of weird stuff floating around in our bodies, like appendices, like just stuff we, you know, that might, <laughs> we design it differently if we were designing from scratch, but that's not how it works. And and that's one possibility with these strategies, right? Like maybe they're just, we, we're not going to, do the kinds of calculations we can do with supercomputers in our head. We're not going to be perfectly rational like an economist. We just got this blob of brain tissue. That's what we're working with. You know, maybe we're making the best that we can, we're doing the best that we can given that. Another possibility, though, is that these strategies get used for all kinds of things that they weren't meant for. And so a second possibility is that these kinds of heuristics are good for something. It's just we kind of apply them in strange ways. And, you know, if you think back to the, the biological markets I was talking about, you get hints that, that some of the biases we're seeing might be more useful in that context, right? So, you know, like you're, you're now a monkey in the forest and you have to decide how long to groom somebody, right? So you run into Bob and you have to say, all right, how long do I groom Bob? Well, you know, abs, absolute terms of grooming don't make much sense here, right? Like you, you wouldn't want to think like an economist and figure out your absolute amount of grooming. You probably want to use a heuristic, right? And it might be like... How long did Bob groom me yesterday? Well, if it was one hour, then great, you know, groom him for one hour. Um, you know, if it was two hours, like, and then you have to kind of step it up. And and that gets you to something like the bias that we're showing, what, what folks call reference dependence, this idea that we're setting up these frames, we're setting up these reference points. Um, and it also gets us to be a little bit loss averse, right? Like, you know, it, it shouldn't matter how much Bob absolutely groomed you, but if he groomed you less than you groomed him, like, then you need some mechanisms to get upset about that. And find it averse, and so on, and so. Mm-hmm. So I think one nice thing about this work is that it reframes these things from like biases and errors, and it, it puts in perspective, like, well, could these kinds of strategies be useful for something? And maybe we're kind of just applying them in strange ways now, but but that doesn't mean over time they were bad for stuff.
0: That's great. See, um, so you know they're adaptive, but not uh,
2: not for everything. You know? Not for
0: everything. Um, they're being they're yeah. being placed in weird scenarios, right?
2: Yeah and I think that's you know we we see that with a lot of the kinds of strategies that natural selection has built in, right? Like I have a strategy built in for many years over primate evolution to like seek out sweet fatty foods. You know, it's like I have a like, you know, Krispy Kreme detector in my <laughs> head that goes off and says, yes, yes, I have, and that's that,
0: he, I have that same detector. Yeah.
2: And, and that was useful when, you know, you and I had ancestors that were, you know, running around the savannah where there were no Krispy Kremes everywhere. Like we, we had to do our best to find Krispy Kreme like things because, you know, it was hard to get food and to get the right number of calories. You know, now, you know, millions of years later, you and I are, you know, walking around the streets of our favorite cities and those things are everywhere. They were useful back then, but they're not now and they're still pretty hard to shut off. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so often these things that were useful back then are kind of playing out in these contexts that, you know, natural selection at the time of our ancestors never could have imagined. Um, and it looks bad now, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean it was bad back in the day when we were really using them.
0: You know, I think this all the time, uh, and I this I have zero evidence for this. This is just some crazy stuff that pops in my head. But I I think that um, you know, like you're part of what you're saying, what you've done here is you've taken these strange things that we've created, um, like these things that these monkeys wouldn't do naturally that are adaptive that don't necessarily pose many problems to them in their natural habitat and their normal, undisturbed monkey lives. Mm-hmm. But uh you've uh sort of you foist it upon them, these human created uh, institutions. And then, and then the, the behavior gets, gets expressed sort of the same way we, we do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that would normally be adapted for one scenario, but then you put them in our scenarios and they're like, Oh, okay, I'll go with the guy that gives you this. And yeah. the, uh, the, I see in like, uh, you see a lot of this, not just the Krispy Kreme example, but I think that this is sort of also happening in, um, you know, like with, with twin Twitter, uh, on Twitter and, uh, other social media, you know, here's an absolutely new environment for our behaviors to express themselves and to be and to flourish in ways they've never flourished. And like, uh, you get things like Twitter dog piles where people Mm -hmm. get absolutely, you know, assaulted by thousands of people over, you know, one thing that they've said, or, or or maybe a misunderstanding, or maybe they're appropriately being, um, being lambasted. And either way, it's a completely new way to express a very old uh, Mm -hmm. pattern of behavior, you know, this, this social manifestation of, of, um, of, of an old, um, probably primate paradigm is really crazy to see how that works out. And I think I see it in a lot of places. Like every time we create new technology and we sort of create a new way of being a person, we have to, each of us become better at being, uh, at controlling, um, a lot of these old strategies, because, uh, just like you have to be a good, user of the brain when you discover that you can eat whatever you want whenever you want. <laughs> mm-hmm. then you have to become a good user of the brain when you discover that I can't instantly just say whatever I feel like to millions of people. Yeah. Uh,
2: and, and I think we to, also have to be, become better um, makers of technology, right? Like, you, you could imagine that if the designers of Twitter or Facebook or whatever knew more about primate behavior and our heuristics, they might design things a little bit differently because it's tricky. In my experience, a lot of these strategies are tricky to overcome without the right situation. Like, um, I mean, your podcast is fantastic, but folks will leave here and they're still going to have the intuition when they see that $1,000 problem of what they should do (laughs) and they're still going to look like a monkey, right? Um, And that means that the, the, the onus in some ways is on the folks who create these structures to try to create them in ways that don't allow our biases to kind of go crazy and wreck havoc. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there there are intuitions in in some of the, the business and policy world about how we can do this. You know, we've seen, uh, I think, a lot of headway in how to design um, better situations with regard to our food biases and stuff like that. Um, folks have, have better intuitions about how to do that. And I think the more we think about that Like not just in like policy or political domains, but in domains that we face in everyday life, like on Twitter, like on these kinds of strange apps, and so on. um, People will be a lot happier because it's tricky to get folks in the moment to rein in their biases. It's better just to set them up so the biases won't won't run amok in a particular situation.
0: Right. Yeah. And you know, part of it is just. I mean, it's just we we seem to have this confidence that well, I'm not going to fall for that i mean like exactly the, like yeah like,
2: yeah. like or i'm like now i know and you know now i know now about reference dependence and loss aversion like i i won't fall for that but um my my co- colleague who's a philosopher here at yale tamar gendler and i have uh christened what we we hope will take as a new bias name we call it the the gi joe fallacy um okay okay tell I'm, me. Not, I'm not tell sure me how old you are david but uh if you're if you're a child of the 80s uh you know this Terrible, terrible cartoon show called GI Joe. Where oh, yes, or I, G.I. I Joe. anyway. Yes,
0: I've seen I've seen every episode. Yes.
2: SM. Yeah. So you know that it ends with you know <laughs> this sort of like you know parable at the end where um, GI Joe gives this important information and the child says, "Well, now I know." And like knowing is half the battle. <laughs> right. And uh, uh, Tamar and I say that the GI Joe fallacy is that knowing is not half the battle when it comes to these biases. You can know about these biases like crazy, you could be complete experts in them and written papers about them, but that doesn't mean you're not going to experience them as soon as you're put in the right situation. And so we think this is yet another bias, right? That people people think once they know about these biases, they that's kind of most of it and they kind of go away. But actually, you know, in our view it's it's not half the battle. It's probably more like you know, maybe a tenth or a fifth of the battle <laughs> if I had to measure it. But um but we but it's amazing to us that even experts have this fallacy. Um, you see this sometimes in you know, some of my favorite popular books about heuristics and biases. They have this part in the introduction and in the discussion of like that kind of reads like a G.I. Joe parable, but like now you know and go off into the world. and And I think that that is a fallacy. We're, we're just not going to shut this stuff off easily. Um, it, to, to me, it's going to work a lot like you know my Krispy Kreme bias that like you know, every time somebody plops a holiday cookie in front of me. I'm going to, you know, have my hunter-gatherer brain telling me to eat it and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how much I know my cholesterol or, you know, know how bad it is or know the nutrition content. I'm just going to want to eat it. And my guess is every time you see a scenario structured like that $1000 problem, you're just going to have the intuition to avoid the losses even if mm-hmm. you know better. And so, and this this raises a challenge, right? Because the normal ways we teach people stuff don't work. For, for evolutionarily old biases. And I think that gives our species some new challenges when we find biases that are really old that we want to overcome. We can't just kind of train people out of them, as, as I think lots of economists have thought for a while. Um, mm-hmm. I think we we have to get better and creatively design better situations, and that's what's going to um, release us from their hold.
0: Well, I certainly think that there is a, um, there's some sort of... Um, movement, you know, happening and across several different disciplines and, mm-hmm. and your, and your research is, is like a huge portion of the, of that movement. And, uh, and you know, it's definitely in the popular culture now, which means that, um, people are thinking about it and noticing it. And there's a sort of a several, I've read from several different, um, uh, you know, several people have written on this sort of looking at it as a shift, like, uh, mm-hmm. going, going from geocentrism to heliocentrism, you know, like it's going from, uh, putting, human beings uh you know taking human beings slowly carefully you know gingerly Mm -hmm. offering a hand and taking them off of this pedestal so that we can be better at uh building better institutions and stuff that sort of reflect how we really are instead of how we we would like to be and how we think we could be
2: and the the funny Uh, thing for me is like it, it doesn't seem like we have a hard time with this in other domains outside of rationality right like you know like we, we have certain biological limitations, right? You're not in my town right now. We're talking via Skype. You know, your listeners are listening via a podcast. We're okay with our biological limitation of how far our voice throws. We develop technology to deal with that, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm sitting here wearing contact lenses. I have this biological limitation about what I can see. I don't feel bad or feel embarrassed that I need contact lenses to see better. I just like see better. The funny thing is like when it comes to our psychology, we don't like to admit that we need these kind of crutches, even though like every other part of our biology and our nature, we, we've we like had to enhance it somehow. Like why not have to enhance our our rationality and our decisions? Somehow it feels weird um, in this way that other things don't. I, and I think your, your analogy to like geocentrism is a good one. It's in part because like, you know, we don't like admitting that we're not like the top dog and the top place in nature and you know this perfect, rational, godlike thing. We we don't like admitting that stuff. And those are the domains where we really need a lot of work to have a paradigm shift in. Mm-hmm. and and I agree it feels like it's happening now, which is really exciting because my sense is like so many of the problems that we face as a species, as a planet, all this stuff, you know, these days it has to do with human behavior. It has to do with human choices. So unless we get this stuff right, um, we're, we're in for a, a not fun ride, I guess.
0: I I, to, I mean, I was having lunch. Uh, no, I was having breakfast with my with my father just the other day and he was t- telling me about his strategy at the casino whenever he gets on a run, mm-hmm. whenever, whenever he's like, you know, when the cards are winning, you know, they're winning. That's when you got to stay. And I'm like, well, look, let me, and I started to do like, I started to explain this whole thing about, you know, you know, random patterns and when it looks like a run and la la la. And it's just, um, it's so, it's so built into who, what we are as people, like even, yeah. uh, uh, you know, even no matter how educated or how worldwide you are, you, you will fall prey to this stuff. And it's good to know that this stuff exists. Hopefully, um, it's getting out there and I know that your work is helping with it. And well, thanks. No, and I love it. And I um, to sort of like uh, leap out of that place, uh, there was a, I've, uh, I've noticed that your most recent research is starting to reveal some ways that maybe you're teasing out the unique, some sort of unique human qualities. No, if our human mind is built on a sort of shared primate foundation. Mm-hmm on top of that, they're going to have some things that we don't and we're going to have some things that they don't. So what are some things that you've discovered uh, or that seem to be coming out of your research that are uniquely human?
2: Yeah, well, uh, this stuff has been especially fun. I mean, in part because we got into this stuff expecting to see differences, right? I mean, again, we're the only ones having these podcasts. They're not. So like something's different, right? So uh, what is it? But uh, what what we're starting to find is that some of the things that are different might make us uniquely irrational in some interesting ways. Um, And the, the first spot or that we saw this came out of some studies we were doing to see if monkeys showed uh, some classic price biases. Um, this is just the bias that, as humans, we tend to confuse um, price and and value or price and quality might be even be a better way to say it. We tend to Mm -hmm. think things that are more expensive are just going to be better. Um, Even if you took exactly the same good and just gave it a higher price tag, we tend to see it as better. So if I um, poured a glass of wine from a bottle that you saw had a a $10 price tag, you'd sip it and think it tasted some way. Um, But if I took exactly the same wine and just added a $100 label, you would subjectively think that the wine tasted better, um, sometimes as high as three times better just because I gave it a better price tag. Um, perhaps even more impressively, uh, folks like Dan Ariely and his colleagues have data suggesting that um, if you pay more for a pain medication, it actually works better. The same pain medication will work better if you pay a ton of money for it versus if you got it really cheaply. Um, so somehow these these kinds of price biases, this kind of confusion between higher prices and, and higher kind of quality um, seems pretty robust. And, we wanted to see if we could see the same thing in the monkeys. And when we started this work, we, based on the, the other uh, findings we had, we kind of thought the monkeys would show this because um, the original work I did with Keith Chen and, and Venkat Lakshmi showed that the monkeys... Knowed a lot. they knew a lot about price. Um, they uh, responded to sales. They kind of obeyed standard economics pricing models. We thought they kind of got price in the same way as people do. And so we thought, you know, given that they get price, maybe they'll show this bias too. And so we introduced the monkeys to different new foods, different new brands of food. Um, and we taught them in the market information about price. So they learned when they went shopping, like, ooh, this um, this, this, uh, brand of jello costs a lot of money. Um, whereas this other brand of jello is pretty cheap. Um, we taught them all that stuff and then we put the monkeys in a situation where they didn't have to spend anything to get the food. They kind of went to like a free monkey buffet. Um, <laughs> and the idea there was that we could just see which ones they liked better. And so the intuition is you might, you know, see a $100 bottle of wine at your market, but not buy it because you're trying to like maximize your wine dollar. But if you went to a free holiday buffet and you saw that really expensive bottle of wine there, that might be the one you tried. And (laughs) so, so we did this with the monkeys. We just basically let them eat whichever foods they wanted. And what we found across a bunch of different studies was that like the monkeys just didn't fall for it. You know, they had their preference for which one they liked and they just didn't change it depending on the price. Um, and we did a bunch of controls to show that the monkeys understood the prices, they, they kind of got the study, they just like weren't showing this effect. And so it seems like this was the first part in our market studies where we were finding that the monkeys were um, uh, more rational than people, in other words that people were kind of uniquely irrational. Um, and this got us to thinking, you know, why, why in this domain are we like doing something weird? And it it got us thinking more about what kind of information people take from price. I mean, one thing Mm -hmm. is like all the, you know, economic stuff, like supply and demand, et cetera, et cetera. But but another thing I think we take from price is we take a certain amount of social information from it, right? Mm -hmm. The reason I like the $100 wine is I know like this is the wine that like rich people get. Like when I'm in a, a posh restaurant in my town and I see the like super expensive wine, I'm like some, you know, investment banker who comes to this restaurant, like that's the one that he's getting. Um, And so we started to think that it might be this social information that humans might uniquely start falling for, Um, and this is uh, some work we're kind of following up on now, is that we might be uniquely automatically susceptible to the preferences and actions of others in a way that is special to our line in evolutionary history. Like, in fact, there's evidence that even our our closest ancestors, chimpanzees, might not kind of conform as much to the kind of bad strategies and bad preferences of people. Um, And we're starting to think that this might be a, a set of heuristics in which we're special kind of like follow other people to your peril. um it might not be as evolutionarily old as we as we would like to think um which is kind of funny because folks often talk about you know monkey see monkey do it's actually doesn't seem to be it it seems more to be uh, sort of human see human do it's kind of yeah interesting.
0: that is so fantastic that is uh that is that is ex- exciting that is i mean like the um I'm just thinking of a buffet with with like cheeseburgers and cheese sticks (laughs) and caviar and, and, uh, and, uh, um, you know, fine cheeses and, you know, uh, he, and human beings going free caviar. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, this stuff's really expensive, you know? And yeah, it's a, I sometimes wonder that too, with these kind of, you know, I, I, one of the reasons I study this stuff is I'm so susceptible to these biases. I have all the wrong intuitions when it comes from this stuff. And, um, particularly with the pricing biases, you know, I'll go into my shop and see this like posh, tiny chocolate truffle and eat it and be like, Oh, this is so delicious. And like, part of me is like thinking about research and being like, you know, this probably tastes exactly <laughs> the same as that huge hunking bar of Hershey's uh, chocolate. But um, but yeah, but uh, but but I do think that we see these things in the economic domain, but it's part of a broader kind of new thing that humans do, which right. is we kind of rely on the information of others. Um, it's one of the reasons we have like language, it's one of the reasons we have podcasts, it's one of the reasons we just kind of share stuff. Um, but that has a, a downside, which is that uh learning other people's information affects what we think and what we believe and what we prefer. Um sometimes that's good if you surround yourself with smart information, but um mm-hmm. in the case of these kinds of pricing biases, it might it might be bad in some cases too.
0: I'm gonna, I'm gonna call it the, the, the Louis Vuitton fallacy. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, 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 uh, uh, and you know what I what's so refreshing about this way of attacking this problem is that it's so um you know, it just seems like it's getting results and it's not, it's just, there's so much in when you start to get, when you start to get approached the evolutionary question, it gets so speculative and it can get really, um, uncomfortable and weird and, and, and sometimes nonsensical and silly and, and eye rolly. Uh, and this just seems like it's, it's, it's actually, uh, it's getting the goods and I really like it. I, I love what you're up to.
2: Yeah, it's we think it's a fun kind of empirical way to test this stuff. And and another great thing for us is like there are lots of cases where we've been surprised, right? Like you you really have to do these kinds of empirical studies to to understand if your intuitions about what should be unique to humans or what should be special, you, you got to kind of ask the animals to see what they do. Um and sometimes and even experts like me are often surprised by what we get, what we what we find. <laughs>
0: So I know I know people are going to be like, I have to keep up with everything this person's doing. How can people find you out there and keep up with what you're up to?
2: Um, they should uh, check out some of our work um, on our, our lab website. Um, these days, the lab website is uh, doglab.yale.edu. Um, and the reason it's dog lab is that uh, we've been trying to look at if there's a non-human species that that might be as interested in social information and social copying as people. Um, and that has led us to some new studies on uh, domesticated dogs. Um, so we've been bringing uh, pet dogs from the New Haven area uh, into our new center to do some economic studies on dogs. Um, And so, uh, so that's kind of the new line of work, um, which you can check out at doglab.yell.edu. Um, folks should also, uh, check out some of the, uh, stuff we talk about on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is just my name. Uh, Laurie Santos, um, on Twitter.
0: All right, ma'am. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is all great stuff and I wish you great fortune in your endeavors. It's so cool. Thanks so much. And now we're going to take a very short break from our show to discuss Patreon. Hello there, fan of the show. First of all, thank you. Um, thank you for listening and telling people about this show. It's because of your word of mouth and your love of this idea for a program that I've been able to put out 40 episodes and interview people like Lori Santos in this episode, uh, Richard Wiseman, Daniel Pink, uh, my hero, James Burke. I still can't believe that happened. And... So here's the thing. I have a wish list for this show, an idea of a kind of show that I would like to make in the future. For instance, I would like to put up more than two episodes every month. I would like to explore new ideas in, in you know, how the show is presented, new ways of telling stories. I would like to invite other storytellers and reporters and other people to contribute to the show and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and if you would like to make that happen, if you'd like to help make that happen, if you would like to become a patron of this podcast, uh, you can do that you could, uh, you can become responsible for growing this show into the show. I know it could be. And, uh, to do that, just go over to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. There's lots more details over there. And if you love the show and you would like to support it directly, this is an easy way to do that. And, um, all patrons will get the show early and a bunch of other things. Um, all you have to do is just go over to patreon.com to see what I'm talking about. And, um, And thank you. Thank you again for uh, helping getting the show to where it's at right now. And um, let's see if we can grow it to something even bigger in the future. Thanks. What starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, uh, Who cares about other things? C is for. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study right after eating a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. If I pick. And bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post that recipe and the winner and the photos and everything else at the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. Now, um, also at you not so smart.com as well. And we're probably going to make a separate page for all of this soon so you don't have to go to Pinterest. We're doing that in the future. And concerning the books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, remember, if you have a copy of this, digital or otherwise, I will sign it for you uh, just, uh, look for that information at the, you are not so smart website under the category books. Okay. So this week's recipe, and, uh, this is such a good one. It comes from Mary Gowing. I hope that's right. It could be Mary going, but I'm going to say Mary Gowing and you sent in a recipe. Oh boy, Mary, these are Earl gray cookies. Oh, they're so great. She says in her email that, uh, she listens to uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. Science Friday, This American Life, Cereal, and she had OD'd on all that stuff, as well as Stuff You Should Know and Wiretap, and um, she's tried a bunch of other stuff, and she just really likes You Are Not So Smart. She likes the idea of psychological talk and cookies, and because of that, she wanted to um, contribute cookies before she went on a road trip, where they planned to binge listen to all of the episodes up until this one, and uh, this recipe for cookies, they're so simple. It's flour, sugar, confectioner sugar, Earl Grey tea leaves um, salt, vanilla extract and, uh, and butter. And of course, you know, I guess the, I guess the Earl Grey leaves make it not simple, but it is really simple. And these cookies, they come out, they're just so petite and delightful and tiny and unassuming. And, and they're just, they just seem, they seem polite. They seem like a polite little cookie that says, Hey there, don't mind me. I made of Earl Grey. Um, they're beautiful. They're tiny little cookies. They look like, uh, maybe like sugar cookies, but, they're speckled. They, um, they look like they've been peppered throughout and, uh, they're flat on the bottom, rounded everywhere else. They're beautiful, beautiful little petite, polite cookies. And uh, we're going to try one right now. Um, I, I hope that your binging has worked out, Mary, and I look forward to binging on these. In fact, I have already, <laughs> like these cookies have been in the house for a couple of days and, um, I have to say, I've eaten, I've eaten, I never really eat, I usually, we usually give away the cookies, uh, right after we make this giant batch of them, uh, we, we have a couple and then we, we give the rest of them out to different places, uh, these cookies, I've eaten, I've eaten more than I usually do, because they're so fantastic, and here we go, let's try one right here on the air, okay, here it is, hmm, 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 Mm. 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 God save Earl Gray. Oh man, these cookies are so delightfully fantastic. <clears throat> They're just, they, I've already noted that they are definitely polite, but this is a sort of cookie that when you bought into it, you go, hmm, heavens, <laughs> where, where did my manners go? The manners are baked into the cookie. You see, this cookie is aware of where the fork goes at dinner. This cookie is the sort of cookie that you, you bring, you bring this cookie to your mouth. You don't bring your mouth down to the cookie. You were taught better than that. Mm. This is a cookie with tails, coattails. Hmm. Oh, so great. And it does. It tastes like Earl Grey. Hmm. It tastes like Earl Grey. It is a polite cookie with manners. This is a cookie for civilized people having civilized discussions over tea. Oh, dear God. Is there tea in the cookie as well? No, I do say this is such a great. So, oh man, thank you so much, Mary. I love this cookie. The instructions here are to, uh, you had the ingredients before. You divide those ingredients in half. You uh, you wrap them into a log and you chill that log for 30 minutes and then you chop it up. And then it uh, it goes from uh, a slightly lascivious log of uh, of cookie dough into polite slices of uh, of wonderful Earl gray, cookiness, biscuit iness This is the biscuit. This is the biscuit to end all biscuits. And sort of, uh, it goes from that log to the cookie and sort of, uh, I would consider it a a finishing school for biscuits Um, through the process of cooking it in an oven. uh, I pretend that it's in there learning Latin and how to conjugate verbs. And then it comes out uh, wearing spectacles and a top hat and says, I do say, Uh, a warm biscuit eases my mind when I think of the terrible news in the colonies. Hmm. What a wonderful cookie. Thank you so much, Mary. Let's talk about some self-delusion. Think back to when you were a little kid or in high school or in college and think about where you sat in your classrooms. Were you a person who sat close to the teacher, far, far away in the back? Or did you like to sit next to the wall or Or were you the kind of person who just sort of jumped into the very middle? Well, a new study in the Journal of Experimental Child Psychology suggests that where you sat in class had a real and measurable effect on your social status throughout your high school and college career. This paper is Peer Status and Classroom Seating Arrangements, a Social Relations Analysis. And I first heard about this through the BPS Research Digest, and you can find their breakdown at Digest.bps.org under the headline, a child's popularity is related to where the teacher seats them in the classroom. So, in the study, researchers they gathered together uh, students in 34 classrooms in 27 schools in the Netherlands. And in each classroom, the teacher assigned the seats to the students. So the students did not choose with whom they sat. Then a few weeks later, and then again a few months later the students were asked how much they liked the people sitting near them and how popular those students were in general. What the researchers found was that the closer to the center of the classroom, the more popular you became. And the least popular, least liked students tended to be the ones sitting around the edges. So why is that? Well, When writing about this study for BPS, Christian Jarrett pointed out that it might simply be because the students in the middle can talk to more students during the year while seated than can the students on the perimeter who have a wall on one side or a teacher. And thanks to something called the mere exposure effect, those students end up better liked because they've gotten to know more people and more people have gotten to know them. So in a second run of the experiment, the students rated popularity first. And then researchers let students pick where they sat. And as you might guess, everyone wanted to sit near the other students who they already considered more popular. And you may recall from a previous episode on the halo effect that this can start up a feedback loop. And this is something that the researchers actually mentioned as well. The popular kids sit with more people, then they get more popular, and then they sit with more people. And before long, there's no doubt who will become the homecoming king and queen. So it's one study. But if correct, it would seem that if you want to climb the social ladder in your school, aim for the middle and avoid the edges. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. All of the music in this episode was provided by banjo Apocalypse. You can find them on the internet. Just Google Banjo Apocalypse. You'll go straight to their page where you can buy their stuff. Head to Boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Go to you are not so smart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast and find links to everything that I talked about today at you are not so smart.com. We can also find information about both of my books, send your cookie recipes to David at you are not so smart.com. And if I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of you are not so smart. The book follow you are not so smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google plus on Twitter. It's at notsmartblog, And I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is clash by caravan palace.